Chapter 11. Old Habits Die Hard. To this point in the book, I have been admonishing Christianity for failing to do the heavy lifting that unquestionably corresponds to its adherents. By heavy lifting, I mean the difficult work of searching for truth, despite the propaganda that says, we've already arrived at truth. Analyzing data for integrity, comparing and testing doctrines, no matter how long they have existed, and chasing hard after truth in classic, time-tested ways. I have claimed that for more than a millennium and a half, we have resigned ourselves to listening to the experts tell us what the Bible says and what the Bible means. I do not claim to be an expert in anything, and certainly not in biblical history, theology, or epistemology. Yet, I have asked some very good questions of Christianity that merit very good answers. Why does God say, in essence, nothing in my eternal will will change? Not my purpose, my truth, my laws, nor my agency. And despite the unchanging God's lack of change, we see vast and totally unforeseen changes saturating the New Testament. Jesus himself states in no uncertain terms that until heaven and earth pass away, not one molecule of the law and prophets will change in any way until everything ginomai. That's the Greek word, ginomai. Ginomai means to become, begin to be, come to pass, happen, arise, and be made. Jesus said that nothing in the law and the prophets will change until everything in the law and the prophets happens, comes to pass, becomes, or is made to be. Now ask yourself, if everything has come to pass that the law and the prophets declared, if that is true, then we can dispense with the prophecies about the afterlife spoken of in Zechariah 14 altogether. While we're at it, we can throw away Zephaniah 3, which is not only a prediction of what will become of the Gentiles and the remnant of the scattered ones, but is also a prophecy about the king of Israel in the midst of his people. If nothing was supposed to change according to God Almighty, then why did it? If the prophecies in the Old Testament were accomplished and finished in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection 2,000 years ago, including all the ones that will happen on and after Judgment Day, then how do Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 17, and 18 make any sense at all? Case in point, we all know that Good Friday is on the Friday before Easter Sunday. What no one can adequately explain is how one gets three days and three nights out of Friday evening to Sunday before sunrise. An enigma wrapped in a riddle. What is truth? Can truth be known? What makes something true or untrue? These are good questions that most of my friends and acquaintances take for granted, and when pressed for an answer, find that an answer is difficult to articulate. Truth may be defined as that which corresponds to reality, or that which fulfills its own standard. 
Our world is and always has been full of people who make claims about truth, reality, and what is right and wrong. Some claims are silly and easily dismissible. Others are not so readily countered or disproved. Making claims, however, is not the problem. I have made many claims in this book thus far. The problem arises when a claim is accepted as truth without evidence to support it. All truth must be supported by evidence. That is the nature of truth. Judy Justice Celebrity and five-decade-long courtroom judge Judith Scheindlin has been entertaining television audiences for years with her no-nonsense, strong, and heavily controlled courtroom culture. She wrote a book titled, Don't Pee on My Leg and Tell Me That It's Raining. What did she mean by this? I would assume that she meant, don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. Some truths are obvious. This is due to the fact that all humans are born with a set of innate truth detectors. We have five senses with which we may engage our world. These senses are not infallible, yet they do provide quite reliable information to us that can be weighed and tested against a standard. We have eyes that register accurate and, for the most part, reliable information about our world. If this were not so, no one would be able to drive an automobile safely. We have the ability to detect sounds that register pretty accurately what is making the sound and from where it is coming, thanks to a sonic triangulation instinct that comes bundled in the presence and location of our two ears. Our olfactory sense, or sense of smell, alerts us to unpleasant and even dangerous odors, while also allowing us to enjoy the aromas that our favorite meal gives off, and even trigger a long-lost memory. We can feel a myriad of textures thanks to tactile receptors all throughout our physical bodies and we taste a wide variety of flavors, some deliciously delightful, others not so much. We all use many methods of truth testing in our day-to-day -day lives without even thinking about it. For example, when was the last time you were about to sit down to eat a meal at your dining room table when you turned your chair upside down first to check the chair's integrity? Is the seat still firmly attached to the legs? Is the back of the chair still firmly attached to the seat? How about that cushion? Has it lost any fluff? Why don't we check our chairs before sitting down? Is it negligence and laziness on our part? Or are we using some standard operating procedure that allows us to sit down day after day, month after month, year after year, at the table, without fear of being seriously injured or fatally wounded in a catastrophic dining room chair accident. We effortlessly use different facets of logic to aid us in how to proceed in the present and the future. Was the chair sound last time I sat in it? Was there anything off about it? Truth, whatever sphere it may encompass, requires evidence to support it. A truth claim or assertion is like the roof of a house. All roofs must be supported by walls. 
No roof sits atop the foundation of a house without walls. Walls, in our little metaphor, serve as evidence. This is why second opinions are sought out when an unfavorable diagnosis is declared. We want proof. We need proof. The requirement of proof is not a lack of faith. In fact, I can find nowhere in the entire Bible where God asks humanity to believe something that has no proof supporting it. Even Jesus' declaration to Thomas in John 20, verse 29, is not about faith, belief, or trust without evidence. Funny thing is, Jesus gave Thomas exactly what he asked for, proof. And when he said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. I do not believe he is advocating trust or belief with no proof. He is saying, Blessed are those who do not require first-hand eyewitness proof in order to believe. These blessed ones that believe without seeing would be anyone living after the time of the disciples. The two questions I've asked many, many Christians, which have proved to be extremely difficult when asked together, are the following. Are you a Christian? And when he or she answers, yes, I asked, why are you a Christian? Inside of 11 years and over 1,100 answers, only one student's parent ever got the right answer. Dear reader, if you are a Christian, do you know why you are a Christian? If you are a Christian because that's how you were raised or you had an experience that changed your life, or you just feel or know that Christianity is right, congratulations, you're a Mormon, or a Jehovah's Witness, or Wiccan, or insert religion here. The only justifiable answer to why are you a Christian is because it's true. You are a Christian because it's all true. Not one of you reading this book has ever seen Jesus with your own eyes, and yet you believe. How is that possible? Is it because you have faith with zero evidence? That cannot be true. If your belief in something does not require any evidence, then why don't you believe in leprechauns or unicorns or flying spaghetti monsters? Simple. There are many, many proofs called circumstantial evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which are beyond a reasonable doubt. That is the study of apologetics. Very cool stuff and also very much needed in our day and age. Fool me once, shame on you. In the first chapter of the audio version of this book, I recorded... The first potentially new vocab word you will see in this book is the name Yehovah. I will be the first to admit that I blew it. I failed epically. I fell prey to the very same careless and considerably lazy practice that I have been discussing in much of this book. I was wrong. Utterly wrong. 
After recording the audible version of this book through chapter 10, I found myself going down a rabbit trail one day. I wanted to see the progress on the authentication and validation of the Hebrew Gospels that were found in places like Catalonia, Spain, and Cochin, India. I typed in a search of Hebrew Gospels in my internet browser. What I found through some substantially intensive research, namely a little over 14 hours of basic Hebrew grammar and manuscript evidence in seminar format, is that the name Yehovah is not the personal name of the creator of the heavens and the earth. The name Yehovah, which is oddly close to the classic name found in numerous English Bibles between 1500 and 1950, Jehovah, is the nonsensical name that is produced when the vowels of Adonai are applied to the letters of God's name, yud heh vav I remember being taught this very thing years and years ago when first coming upon the name Jehovah in a Greek class I took in college. Very recently, I sat through a seminar by a young man named Justin J. Van Rensburg, who has dedicated an entire 12-plus episode seminar showing the evidence for why the teaching disseminated by Hebrew scholar Nehemia Gordon among many others, is false. I was crushed. I was angry, sad, deeply disturbed. But most of all, I was embarrassed and ashamed of myself. And suddenly the weight of the damage I had done to countless others who had listened to the book that I was releasing chapter by chapter was placed firmly on my shoulders. How could I have let this happen? How did I commit the very same error that I've been accusing Christianity of committing for all these years? The truth is that there is undeniable proof. Proof that spans the contextual, linguistic, logical, and lexical. That not only is the gibberish name, Yehovah, not remotely possible in the Hebrew Bible, but is intimately tethered to Kabbalah, or Jewish paganism. Kabbalah is the study of magical, mythical, and secret or occult knowledge originating with a book written in the 14th century called the Zohar. In the case of God's name, the vowel points of the Hebrew word Adonai are placed over and under the letters of God's name, yud Hey vav Hey. When the letters of God's name are pronounced with the vowels of Adonai, the gibberish word that results is Yehovah. However, the scribes never intended for anyone to actually read Yehovah or Jehovah, because every scribe knew that in place of pronouncing God's personal name, the title Adonai was to be read. This is an ancient practice called Ketiv Kare, meaning written, read. For example, if the word potato had the vowels removed, the remaining consonants and corresponding sounds would be petite. And if the vowels from, let's say, the word zucchini were applied to the consonants of potato, you would get the word putiti. This is what the scribes did with the name of God. 
the four letters known as the Tetragrammaton. They applied the vowel points of Adonai, and at times the vowel points of Elohim, to the four letters of God's name. The result for the unenlightened, namely me, is the nonsense word Yehovah or Yehovi. You might be sitting there thinking, gee, Mark, don't be so hard on yourself. But the truth is, the evidence that I found, which overwhelmingly opposes Nehemiah Gordon's teachings, was not only very easy to find, but served as a reminder that I should have and could have done my due diligence before accepting a so-called expert's opinion. Did I myself not quote Dr. Stephen Meyer when he said, Beware of the sound of one hand clapping. I didn't follow my own advice. And the result is now a big mess. I am now obligated by a sense of duty to the truth to revise all of the chapters of this book. Now I must eliminate the gibberish name, Yehovah, and replace it once again with the Lord and God. So it's back to the drawing board. Since the first time I stood behind a podium in a high school classroom, I have been ever aware of something that Jesus' half-brother James wrote in the third chapter, verse 1, of his New Testament book by the same name. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I had to teach myself to use the name Yehovah in place of the Lord or God. I loved the thought of finally having his real name, only to find out that I had not only believed a lie, but had myself spread that lie across the far reaches of the World Wide Web. I have heard many of my friends and students, and even from a few of you, who have listened to this book, begin to use the name Yehovah. And now that I know that his name is not Yehovah any more than the starchy vegetable that grows in the dirt that made Idaho famous is called a putiti, I lament deeply that I led any readers, or in this case listeners, astray by disseminating that false teaching, however benign or malignant one may think it to be. I like you, want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. Reflection. I want to remind you, my dear reader, that everything that has been claimed in this book is subject to investigation. The whole book is one big supplication to Christianity to wake up from its slumber to stop taking teachings at face value, to audit all claims for integrity and harmony against what the Bible actually says. We must all relearn this ancient way of thinking, this logical way of thinking. For logic is how God thinks. It is another expression of who he is. How so, you might say. Logic is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Only two other entities were described in the Bible in this way, God the Father and Jesus the Messiah. 
We have to become good at testing all claims, whether they come in the form of sermons, lessons, doctrines, creeds, or religions. I often told my students that it was not my job to teach them what to think. Rather, my job was to teach them how to think. It is my opinion that modern-day Christians need to become proficient at testing truth claims against the standard which all believers used in the entire Bible. That standard is the Torah and the prophets. But what is the one part of the Bible with which most Christians are largely unfamiliar? The Torah and the prophets. Not even Paul was above scrutiny as an ordained apostle sent by Jesus himself. Acts 17 verses 10 and 11 record something truly amazing. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish assembly. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The believers in Berea knew what to do with truth claims, whether they came from Paul, Silas, Peter, Luke, Jesus, or the angel of the Lord himself. They examined the scriptures, also known as the Torah and the prophets, to see if what Paul and Silas were teaching was in alignment with what God had already spoken and closed through his prophets. If Paul had taught anything that did not agree with what was already established, even Paul and Silas would have been rejected. You see, the Bereans were not impressed by titles, degrees, expertise, accolades, and the like. They listened to Paul, and then they fact-checked Paul every single day to see if Paul's teachings held water. Their standard was the same standard that every Pharisee used to test Jesus. Every interrogator used to question Jesus. Every disciple used to understand Jesus. And what Jesus himself used to deliver every single teaching he ever gave. The importance of fact-finding and using the right standard cannot be overstated. Where are we now? The error that so many of us are guilty of committing is that of listening to the teachings of the experts and rather than researching those teachings by means of testing them against common sense, logic, philosophical reasoning, internal and external textual consistency, and attempting to falsify said teachings, we have simply accepted them on the merit and authority of the teacher and in turn have parroted them to the next set of ears. This should not be. I should not have done what I did. How did I let myself be so easily duped? In my zeal for knowing the true name of the Creator, 
I let what Nehemiah Gordon taught and still teaches to this day as fact, truth, and settled science regarding the name of God be my authority. A great friend of mine reminds me quite often that education is very expensive, regardless of how you get it. So it's back to square one for yours truly. For all those who had listened and began to use the name Yehovah, I beg your forgiveness. I never meant to lead anyone astray. That has never been my intention, nor will it ever be. Please don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That is to say, don't reject the previous chapters of this book because of this glaring error. Please do, however, continue to scrutinize the material that has been released thus far. I don't know yet if this chapter will be published with the written book that I hope will come out after the next chapter is recorded. It may be of service to some even when all the revisions are made and the chapters are corrected. I highly encourage you who listen to this chapter to go to hebrewgospels.com and listen to Justin Van Rensburg rebut Nehemiah Gordon's teachings on the name Yehovah. He is unpolished, young, and does not have near the audience and exposure that Nehemiah Gordon has. But please don't let his age or lack of luster fool you. He is highly skilled in the Hebrew language, and what convinced me above all was that he used the exact same evidence that Gordon used to show clearly and decisively that Gordon's teachings are false. He uses all the same manuscripts and coupled with a vast understanding of Hebrew grammar and linguistics, utterly demolishes each one of Nehemiah's arguments and all without anger, vitriol, or ugliness. He is a seeker of truth just like you and me. May God bless you in your heavy lifting.